Welcome to a Voices of Esalen Archive Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Our featured talk today was delivered at the Esalen Institute in September of 1966 by famed American psychologist Abraham Maslow, best known for creating Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, a theory of psychological health predicated around the idea that the most basic or pressing needs, like food, safety, and security, must first be satisfied in order to address needs such as love and belonging, esteem, and finally, self-actualization. Maslow and his school of humanistic psychology was extraordinarily important for Esalen's development in its early years. His curiosity about the psychological development of basically normal and healthy individuals in part formed the foundational approach of Michael Murphy and Dick Price's programming for Esalen. In this talk, Maslow expounds upon what he calls B-values, short for being values, among them goodness, beauty, uniqueness, justice, simplicity, and richness. He also explores motivations, metapathologies, and truth. Now the idea is this, or this is where the, uh, where the thing starts. Uh, the, the question now is about what are the motivations of self-actualizing people? That is, what are the motivations of uh, people who are beyond needs of the ordinary because they're already satisfied. Everything that any child has a right to, supposing he's got them. And then uh, uh, you're grown up and you're living at this level of self-actualization. Now, um, what moves such people? Uh, these are busy and active and capable people and they're working hard generally. What moves them? And uh, classical motivation theory up to this point has just no answer. Well, if in my examination of such people, uh, I find to start with one very impressive fact that is true for every single one that I have ever met or read about or heard of, namely that they, are, they have a cause, that is, they have a vocation, a calling. It's something they may call, well, my job, but they mean a special thing by it, or my work. And the trouble is, is we, there should be a halo around that of some sort. My work, it should be said in a different tone. It has a different meaning. It's my precious work, my mission in life, my calling. Uh, what I was put on earth for, you know, that, with that sense. And this is true for every single one that I've ever met. I think what uh, I broke through here, when I broke through the conventional categories, that is, as a lawyer saying, well, I love the law, you, you can't say that uh, being a lawyer is uh, any great matter because there are good lawyers and bad lawyers and, and, and so on. It has nothing intrinsically to do with this self-actualizing life. So if you ask, then, if you're interested to do this yourself, this was uh, roughly what I did. Why did you go into it? The first question. And then with long uh, talk and lot of uh, listening. And the second question is, what are the great moments for you? That is, what are the rewards? And I would make a speech maybe like this. We know that any job of any kind is mostly crap. It's mostly junk. It's mostly dishwashing and chores and 
cleaning up floors and filing away letters and so on and so on. We agree on that, don't we? everybody thinks for a moment. People, people who love their work get startled by it. But they think for a moment, say yes. Then separate that out. Which are the great rewarding moments? Which are the thrills for you? When does your whole life become worthwhile? Your life as a mathematician, as a chemist, or as a, a lawyer. Then I, as the examples come in to me, I find that I have long lists of such uh, specific examples of great moments, of the rewarding moments, which make the dishwashing worthwhile. And I can put these, I'm trying to put these together, and my, my condensation of, uh, let's say, hundreds of such statements is that it condenses together into statements about the ultimate values. That is, uh, the self-actualizing lawyers are, in an essence, they give me one example after another, in essence they're saying, I love justice. Well, why do you love justice? And that's the end, that's your blank wall. This is an ultimate wall be beyond which you can't go. They don't know, they, they can't say, well, I just, I'll say, I just get mad if somebody, I find somebody taking advantage of someone else. It ain't fair, you know. Well, I, why do you care if it isn't fair? And then you're up against that, an, an ultimate. Uh, this is not a means to an end. Uh, they hate injustice and they love justice, period. That's not a means to anything else. That is as final as you can get. All the talking in the world cannot go behind it. It's not instrumental. This is final. It's a, and this, this is what we call an end. This is what you can call a value, an end value, something which is intrinsically worthwhile in itself. Okay, that's, that, that's a, that is one of the ultimate values. Then if you talk with uh, scientists or artists and so on, you can get the same kind of thing about ultimate, well, it's beautiful. Or if you talk uh, with the, the, the woman about the about children, and um, I mean, people at this point they start getting inarticulate. Say, well, why do you like children? That's a silly question in the first place. They just do, and but if you try to push it further, well, they're cute. Well, they're lovable. Uh, I love them because they're lovable. Now, and this is the sign that, you again, you've got to the end. You've got to an intrinsic motivation. You're dealing, in other words, with a value of the ultimate sort, an end in the philosophical sense, not the means to anything else. You love children because they're lovable. Well, that's about it. That's it. They're cute. They're appealing. I just feel so good when I hug them. You know, that kind of thing. Well, why do you feel good when you hug them? Oh, I have to get impatient with you. Uh, you're up against this final wall. Now, this is intrinsic, it's not extrinsic, because it's worthwhile in itself. Uh, it feels good to hug children because it feels good to hug children. That's about as ultimate as so that's what you have to say. And if you want to go further, you have to then talk about the nature of human nature. We are so constructed that we children feel good. Now, 
the va at, at this point, there's a little jump in my uh, working out. Uh, I don't have enough, uh, I don't have thousands of such statements, only maybe dozens or maybe a hundred. Uh, but it's quite clear that self-actualizing people are doing what they're doing for ultimate, final, intrinsic, end value. And that's what they're motivated by. That's what they live for. That's what excites them. That's what they love. That's what they protect. That's what they'll fight for. That's what rouses them into anger and into indignation, into taking chances and fighting and maybe even uh, risking their lives and so on. At this point, for my own theoretical strategies, since I had already discovered in another operation from, from illumination experiences in peak experiences about the way the world looked and so on and so on. I have worked out these ultimates again, and the ultimates I put down as a list of values of being, be value. And it looks to me offhand, although at this moment I won't push it any further than that, my impression is that that <coughs> list of be values would be about the same, uh, that these are the values of self-actualizing people. Well, at this professor of psychology level, you could say these are the motivations of self-actualizing people. And I've put another word on it for book purposes. It's called, called the meta-motivations now to distinguish between the basic needs, you know, being motivated by the need for love, for instance, which every child has, and which you can really get enough of, uh, and which is not as final as the B-values. If you want to understand motivation at its highest reaches, this is about as far as we can get, then you can say self-actualizing people are motivated by the eternal verities, by pure truth and justice and perfection and beauty and goodness and virtue and oneness and of comprehensiveness, that is, of, of everythingness, uh, and of the uh, going beyond dichotomies and polarities, that is, of integrating and making more oneness, and of a peculiar kind of uh, humor uh, as a final value, that this is the list of B values. The question came up of, do these, are these motivations uh, like the basic needs in the sense of being instinctoid? My strong impression was that this is a defining of human nature. If you deal with this stuff and if you talk with people at this level, then you feel, my God, that's what it is. you're talking about their bones and their arteries and blood. This is just, this, this is part of them. So I raised the question then of, can these be thought to be instinctoid needs in the sense in which the basic needs are? That is, in the strict sense very strict sense, which, is, which runs through the whole of medicine, physiology, and so on and so on, in the same sense that we talk about calcium as a need, or vitamin B as a need, uh, or sodium chloride as a need. Uh, the question is, can these be said to be needs in the same sense? And the sense is, will there be a pathology? Will, will, the, as, will it Will it be sickening, sick-making, or uh, pathologizing? 
Is it pathogenic? That's the word. Is, it, is the absence pathogenic? Now, if you cut out uh, all uh, the potassium salts from the diet, then, then there will be an illness. If you cut out vitamin D, there will be an illness. We say vitamin D is, is, a, is a need simply because its absence make, makes illness. We call uh, love a basic need for exactly the same reason. You take love away from children and it will kill them uh, under the right circumstances. We, we know that. Uh, unloved babies uh, die so easily from, from, any, from a cold or anything. Then the answer is, is, a, is a funny answer because, well, my answer is, my God, yes. Uh, most obvious to me, well, of course. Do you get sick if you are deprived of the truth? And it hadn't occurred to me before, but I asked the question, so yes, the answer is obvious. Of course you get sick. What do I care if the American Psychiatric Association hasn't discovered it yet? Of course it's sick. <laughs> um, and I get sick. I, it's, uh, there are particular assignable kinds of illnesses. When I'm in a situation where I don't get the truth, for one thing, I get paranoid. I get suspicious. I don't trust anybody. I look behind things. What are they trying to say? And uh, try to figure out and read behind the lines and mistrust and so on. Well, if uh, getting to the state of mistrust and of suspicion and not believing anything means I'm sick. In that particular thing, and I decided to call this a metapathology. Uh, one way of defining it is the not yet discovered illnesses which result from deprivation of the, of the B value, which, which will pretty soon be discovered and described. As a matter of fact, we can play with it ourselves if we like. Uh, I'd say that for the truth, that we can, it's easy. Then for, uh, if I go down the line, is the deprivation of beauty, is that a, a pathogenic? <coughs> and then I say, certainly it is. Uh, in varying degrees for different kinds of people. In my family, we have kind of a gradation of aesthetic sensitivities. There's, let's say my wife and one of my daughters are extremely uh, aesthetic, very, very sensitive. They, they get extremely and acutely distressed. They, uh, they get uncomfortable, they lose their appetites and so on in ugly surroundings. And furthermore, they get restless and have to start fixing things up and so on. Uh, now, uh, I'm, I am less so. I am another daughter, of course, I suppose aesthetic enough, but not to that degree. Uh, my way of living in ugliness is uh, uh, I can endure it by simply becoming blind to it. And if I get conscious, I get irritated and so on, but I won't want to rebuild the house, and my wife will. Um, as a matter of fact, she has to. <laughs> and, and I've seen, uh, these people have sensitized me to this, and I've seen the people that we would call aesthetically sensitive, uh, that we would pick out of the population, let's say the 1% most sensitive, are like that. Uh, to live in, in ugly surroundings sickens them. It makes them sick. And I have no doubt that uh, it, it affects their menstruation and their appetites and they get headaches and, and uh, besides feeling restless and unhappy and uncomfortable and let me get the hell out of this place and so on. Now, uh, I've done uh, one experiment. My wife and I started uh, 
series of experiments on beautiful and ugly rooms, beautiful and ugly surroundings. And we have uh, the beginning data to prove the point. For instance, and this goes over into the realm of social psychology, that in ugly surroundings, as compared with beautiful surroundings, uh, faces look worse. That is, uh, I remember how startling it was when I was setting up this experiment myself, and I knew what it was. Uh, you see, insight doesn't destroy this. That uh, looking at the pictures, the faces that we were using to be judged in the two, in the ugly surroundings and the beautiful surroundings, when I couldn't help it, as I got the pictures in this horrible, the uglified room, that I, I would see the pictures as uh, kind of semi-psychotic. I remember thinking, oh, that looks paranoid to me, uh, that face, and uh, this looks dangerous, and so on. I get the, feel, the feelings that the faces look bad. Now, we have experimental data to prove that. Faces, and presumably human beings, therefore, we haven't done those experiments, look different in these surroundings. There are effects and they are, let's say, mildly sickening, mildly to very sickening, depending on how sensitive you are, and also depending on your defense mechanisms. That is, if you can turn away from it or deny it or hard thicken your skin or so it's not to notice. I would say that this kind of indication is, for me anyway, at this skating on thin ice, you know, out the head, this is good enough for me. I'll call it a metapathology. Living with nasty people, living with evil and uh, with non-virtue and with so on, as compared with living with good people, is, I'm certain, as I introspect upon it, a pathological force. It makes me different, and I, I, uh, while I haven't done any experiments or attempted any researches, it is so definite and also it fits so much with common sense and it fits so much with everything we know about history and psychology and so on that I have now accepted that also as a metapathology. And if you introspect, I think you'll find this, you'll find it in yourself. That uh, when you're with nice people, you become a nicer person. You feel better. It lifts you up. Uh, one good way of becoming, of fostering self-actualization is pick yourself beautiful and decent and good people to be with. And you just, you can't help it. You simply get healthier. <laughs> uh, this kind of environment here, for instance, which almost, uh, it's like a semi-permeable membrane, selecting out nice people. <laughs> this will interest you, and perhaps it's also therapeutic for your own purposes. Once, long ago, uh, when I had to be in a small town, I was the manager of a small plant, in a small town, and I was uh, hated. I, I looked forward to it. Uh, this was the uh, biggest plant in the town, and I thought, my God, here yeah, I'm going to have to spend my time in ceremonial dinners with the American Legion, and uh, <laughs> daughters of the American Revolution, and so on and so on, and with the local square dance club. Uh, and then my fears proved to be unwarranted. Turned out that either they were very nice about it, or the, you know, clubs or something, they just didn't bother me at all. And I heaved a sigh of relief, and went on. until one day, as I caught on to what this town was like, 
dawned on me. My name was Abraham. And that was no place for Abraham. Uh, Abraham's was certainly tolerated. Nobody threw rocks at me. But I wasn't invited to the American Legion. And then came this big... <laughs> that was quite a moment. And I thought of uh, saying this to other people, how to be happy though Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, finally, the way I wrote it up was, I, was, I wanted to publish this, because it was such a big insight for me. Uh, and I wrote this semi-permeable membrane. And it started, I carry with me wherever I go a semi-permeable membrane. And it's wonderful because it keeps away from me all the bastards. <laughs> all, the, all the stinkers stay away from me. All the mean people and the cruel people, they stay away from me. And isn't this a wonderful thing? And how much would you pay for such a thing? <laughs> that lets through only nice people and, and thoughtful people and kind people and so on. And then I got stuck at the end of the thing. I never did publish it. Uh, so there was only one trouble with the semi-permeable membrane. It let through the Jewish bastards. <laughs> I should have published it. <laughs> well, I think it's well from this kind of thing, this is my justification for saying, the, to live among uh, evil or bad or nasty or intolerant or cruel people makes you sick. This is, oh, and here I can introduce the word, this is a spiritual illness. The illnesses I have been talking about have been through the millennia called spiritual ailments. If you don't love mankind, if you feel, if you finally get to the point of mistrusting everybody, or of hating everybody, or of thinking that everybody is, that, that, that human beings are just simply intrinsically evil, all of them, all the way, then of course you're sick. You can't be friends with anybody, really. You can't love anybody. If you can't love anybody, that makes the whole institution of marriage and all the, all the things around it practically impossible. And then, of course, you're deprived. And it's, I would say that was an illness. That, and I, now, technically, I'll call it a metapathology. For other purposes, a spiritual illness, and for still other research purposes, this is one of the value pathologies. Question. If you, are if you live in an unjust environment, what happens? Well, we have case histories, right through history. There are plenty of them. On such, in such an environment, it's quite clear that people get uh, sick in a particular way. That is, they, uh, the cynicism in various senses, the mistrust of the possibility of goodness in human beings, uh, the mistrust of all human beings, the mistrust in all values, and the conclusion that it is impossible that there should be good values, or all, that all the values which, which those Americans up there keep talking about, uh, that this is all a fake and a pretense, 
it's phony or it's a cover-up. It's a nice coat of varnish on things and underneath it there is rot and corruption and so on and so on. And so on down the line for uh, each of these uh, B values, as I've tried them out tentatively, uh, it seems to me, yes, if I ask, uh, for instance, the question, what would a life be like without any humor whatsoever of this, uh, this highest, the B humor, that is, uh, mystic's humor, godlike humor? Uh, what would happen to people? Of course, we know what happens to people without any humor. That's one of the symptoms of paranoia, for instance. To be without humor of that kind altogether is an extremely uh, pathogenic thing. Okay, there are metapathologies, and then there is a general metapathology, the state of valuelessness, which is of extreme interest to me because of, of, the, of trying to figure out the new left, the youngsters who are... It changes, uh, those youngsters have changed for me anyway, the theory of self-actualization to some extent. Because I have found youngsters, fine youngsters, who, are, who fulfill the criteria of self-actualization that I've had. They were gratified in all the basic needs, uh, they were using their capacities well, and uh, there were no uh, symptoms, no psychopathological symptoms, uh, obvious. Well, and then I thought that they were, there were youngsters who were anyway disrupted and disturbed. And why? Uh, because they had not embraced the B values. That is, these were youngsters who, who mistrusted all values. They mistrusted the elders, they mistrusted people of authority, they mistrusted the whole establishment. And then if you talk values to them, as any minister would, for instance, or any uh, do-gooder would, they regarded these, they talk about truth and justice and goodness and virtues. That's a lot of crap. It's fake. There ain't no such thing. And uh, all you can really do, these are hopeless kids, of course, some of them, all you can really do is to protest. That's about the only thing that's left to do. You can't, they don't even hope to make a better world. You can't. Well, this would be general. That I, I find, that, of course, this is obviously pathological. State. In the first place, it's just unreal. It's false. You know, it's, it's like being blinded in one eye. I can't see things. So you, uh, you talk about general uh, metapathology here, and I would then say, uh, I for myself have expanded the definition of self-actualization to include those three criteria plus embracing the B values and being committed to them, or some version or part or one or more, but to have a value life. If you don't have a value life, it's, it's true, you may not have the classical neuroses or psychoses, but you will have metapathology, value pathology. Therefore, you're sick in this newer sense. You have a spiritual illness. And it's classical also in the sense of being a cognitive illness. All illnesses blind you. They destroy your relationships with reality to some extent. That's one criterion for illness, including metapathology. Okay, another jump. I would say that uh, this kind of thing, and I have—I uh, trust that uh, I'm assuming that way. I assume that closer investigation will support these conclusions, that these are in truth metapathologies, that the deprivation of B values in fact makes you sick in these assignable ways. Therefore, B values are needs of a particular kind, and I would say to distinguish them from the other, meta-needs in the sense, 
and on the same continuum as vitamin D. There are needs in the sense exactly the same. Sickness results upon deprivation. Therefore, it suddenly comes within the purview of the whole realm of discussion of the biological nature of man, of instinct theory, of the essence of human nature, essential human nature, which the existentialists are talking about now, or what the Europeans would call philosophical anthropology. How do you define the human being in his essential nature? Uh, I propose that uh, the B values are meta-needs and are therefore part of the defining characteristics of human nature and therefore, if I can call those the, this whole talk about value pathology <coughs> and values and so on as what people have talked of for thousands of years as the spiritual life or the religious life or the higher life or the rational life or the platonic Socratic life or the realm of pure essences then, now you can understand the title that I would like to put on, The Biological Rootings of the Spiritual Life. It makes sense so far, step by step as you go along. It seems to be very reasonable. And then you're in another realm of revolutionary discourse. If you're with me, if you accept this so far, you don't realize how many hooks were on that thing as it went down so easily. <laughs> All sorts of uh, things that'll borrow around that, that you, you've committed yourself to without knowing it. Now, for instance, it's a, a very peculiar kind of thing which I can't quite figure out. The B values are not hierarchical like the basic needs. They seem all somehow to be a big clump. Uh, one is as important as another. Uh, in theory, because from person to person the center varies. And I gather so far that it is our constitutional temperamental nature, this real self, the core, the biological core, the thing that makes me different from you and you and you and you, and makes us different from each other, that will make one much more sensitive to truth, another much more sensitive to beauty another one much more sensitive to justice. So, so that these are not hierarchical, these are in the realm of individual differences, equally valuable, equally potent, equally prepotent. But a peculiar thing happens. Uh, as I started working with this, I start with truth, which I love. <coughs> That's my, as a matter of fact, I love professionally. Andy, this was one of the things that I was doing there at Bird Rock overlooking the surf, and I got it uh, almost done, and it's, since it's never been finished. It's the working out of the full definition of the truth. And uh, we talked about it some. It's not really finished. But so far, the way it looks, as far as I've gone, the truth is a very much more complicated thing than, let's say, the law courts. You know, they say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? I have about eight more, no, twelve, it's altogether fourteen qualifications <laughs> like that. There are, no, I can say, there are fourteen facets of truth, there, which means there are fourteen kinds of lie, all of them available, I've used mostly for my uh, clinical data here, the television, 
And all 14 kinds of lie are easily available in quantity on the television. I get all the clinical data that you want, metaclinical, uh, spiritual. And roughly it looks like this, that the full definition of the truth is I have to add to it. It has to be whole truth. It has to be, it's the beautiful truth. There's an aesthetic element in it. It must be complete, and that's one of the B values and so on. To make it brief, it looks as if truth is defined in terms of all the other B values. <coughs> the truth is beautiful, the truth is good, the truth is just, the truth is complete, the truth is one, the truth is comprehensive, and then this interesting, the truth is funny, <laughs> at, at a uh, godlike funny, you know, Olympian <coughs> funny, uh, which it is. And if it's not funny, then it's not really the whole truth, and we must find some word that gets it. Uh, Nietzsche had words, you know, the, uh, the godlike humor, that kind of thing. Okay. Then I go to the next one, so I'm on the second one now, uh, working with beauty, and it turns out, it looks to me, my gosh, as if beauty can also be defined uh, fully in the same style, and so help me, it looks as if beauty fully defined is in terms of all the other B values. It fits beautifully. Uh, beauty, in order really to be, uh, to be totally satisfying and totally beautiful, and to have nothing missing. It, it must be true and good and just and single and comprehensive and whole and, and transcend dichotomies and be integrative and so on down the whole line. And it looks to me, I'm now projecting at this point, extrapolating, it looks now to me as if each of the B values is fully definable in terms of all the others. It, it may very well be that if we get this kind of thing worked up, that we may have a new canon of aesthetic criticism, a new way of, of, of judging. And it's, for me, it's very satisfying. Our report is one person. Very satisfying. It solves for me the problems that have uh, tortured me in college. It's about, uh, you know, was Oscar Wilde, uh, the style is, is just beautiful. What shall I think about Ezra Pound? Uh, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And I, for myself, I feel comfortable and relaxed. It seems to me that I have a, a weapon of criticism which has never existed before. For beauty, for truth, for justice, I can define them all. Well, that's a breathless thing. <laughs> that's, that's big stuff. And as I, you, you can understand that you go with, with excitement from one thing to another there and see all sorts of old problems just fall into shape. Okay, that's, that's one the realm of, of revolution, uh, personally, for me. Uh, now, it's, that something comes up. If all the B values are definable in terms of each other, we know from factor analysis and stuff like that, it, oh, we, have, we have a G factor, there's a general factor here. There's something called general value. Somehow all of the 14 B values are not 14, they're one. They're bound together somehow. There, there are connections between them. They don't stand on their own. That 14 B values is not a pile of sticks, of 14 sticks. They are, the, if I talk about 14, these are facets of one thing. 
and I must talk in some sense about general value. Then I must get modest, of course, about the, that 14, because that is one fallible guise of uh, quint quintessentializing of many, many protocols. I mean, that's a human construction of trying to boil down a lot of statements into a small compass. Maybe it's 14, maybe it's 13, maybe it's 17, maybe it's... I mean, it's, it, I, I'm certain that it can't be terribly different, but I'm equally uh, comfortable with the thought that somebody else would come along with exactly the same data and make it, make it somewhat different. And then the answer is clear. Why should it not be? Because this is one jewel with many facets. And so you look at this value, a G value, general value, you look at it from one angle and then you see one glitter. And you look at it from another angle and you see another aspect of it. And then you start thinking of all these old philosophical problems nominalism and do, do generalizations exist and are there pure essences and is there such a thing as truth or is truth just a kind of a word for many, many true things? And the professors of philosophy have been struggling with this ever since anybody wrote it down. And here are answers which come from another angle and therefore have a dignity which the philosophical answers haven't. They come from the direction of science. That is, these are, now it's perfectly true, I know very well that I'm skating around on very thin ice. I happen to like that, personal pleasure. Uh, I like scouting out ahead. Granted that this is not uh, proven and solid and certain and so on, but where does it come from? It comes from at least the quarter of the compass, which is science. It comes from that direction. If you want to say it's a little out ahead of the solid science, okay. Pre-science, uh, empirical theorizing. But I'm a scientist, and that's the kind of theorizing that a scientist is doing and poking out ahead there. So it, takes, uh, it has to be taken in a different way than professor of philosophy stuff. It's, it claims a different kind of of work. Still, the, uh, these, you can go on with these revolutions one after another. At least. So if, if you just look through a history of philosophy book and see how this stuff just makes each of the chapters look different. Come back to the human being. If you have the, let's say, the self-actualizing person who is, uh, uh, I've now learned, he says, well, I'm devoted to justice. I now say to myself, I translate it. This guy enters into the realm of general value via the portal of justice. Actually, justice fully defined, as I find it in self-actualizing people, is defined by all the other B values, roughly speaking, and therefore he loves general values. Uh, concentrating on that part of it for which he is most suitable and which he loves most, and for which he, in his own human, partial, since no human is total and complete, that's what he's good for, so he devotes himself to that. Uh, perhaps the way a scientist might to the truth, he would say, well, I'm really interested in the truth. But the difference between the self-actualizing truth <laughs> and other kinds of lesser uh, definitions of the truth, that's very, very different. 
And so he is very, he is kin and brother to the, uh, this other guy who says, well, I'm li- leaving, it's a completely different kind of life. It's, it's, it's fine about the truth and about your scientific work and the advancement of knowledge and so on, but I am devoted to justice. It's not so. They're both devoted to the same thing. <coughs> but they're, they're pulling the same wagon. Only they do it, each one does it. He's got a good set of muscles on this side, and the other one has a good set of muscles there, and they do their own special job, and it's a division of labor, you might say. That's one of the, if if you're interested in that theory of revolution, this is built into it. That is, uh, in the theory of social improvement, social change, of what shall we do in a world which distresses us and we'd like to do something about, that principle is very important and follows from this discussion of you find out who you really are, what you're, which means what you're best for, what you're good for, ultimately, in a perfectionistic way, what you could do better than anybody else in the whole world, what nobody could substitute for, then that's your fate, your call. Furthermore, it's so nicely arranged, that's what you will enjoy most. <laughs> Very synergic. You be as profoundly selfish as possible, and you find then you're being the most altruistic, most unselfish. The, tra- the dichotomies here are very, very clearly <coughs> transcended. Uh, selfishness and unselfishness, and so on. I mean, these are they melt into each other, uh, and that's part of the theory of revolution. Is one part of it is a call. Be in this sense at the B level. Be, be, be sure to be very, very selfish, because that's the best way to help the world. If you want to be most altruistic, the best kind of altruism in the world, you really love your brothers, you really want to help them, you find the best way is to be yourself, be your best, fullest self. Turning back to these individuals now, if you ask one of these people, uh, let's say this lawyer with the justice and so on, and you ask him, well, how would it be if you weren't a lawyer? You'll find that for anybody who really loves his work, who loves his faith, who loves his destiny, the vocation, uh, this is a kind of a senseless question because they can't very well imagine being, it would be like if you could imagine you were something else. If I, you know, if, if I could say, now try to imagine being a man. And, well, it, you can't if you're not. You literally can't. And you, for these people, this is the way it does. For, for someone who loves his work, of course that includes many more than self-actualizing people, uh, for anybody who loves his work or his fate or his, uh, what, his career or what life has brought for him, you'll find he cannot conceive of this. And I will therefore say that this has been introjected into the self or interiorized, or it has another way of... It has become a defining characteristic for him of his self. When he says, I am this kind of a guy, as I would say for myself, I would certainly say among us, I'm a psychologist. It's very important for me. Uh, I can't even conceive of not being a psychologist. I, I don't know what it would feel like. Probably awful. <laughs> then you would say, if now you've gone with me on this business of the B values being behind the career category. That is that this man was, he says, I, I love the law and I'm a lawyer and this is a defining characteristic of myself. 
if you <coughs> accepted that other jump to saying that it's really, what he's really talking about are the values which are embodied and incarnated for him in the law, then you'd say that for him, justice, this, the, this particular value, and all fully defined justice, is a defining characteristic of the self. It is introjected, it is interiorized, it is identified with, it is part of him in about the same way that his gallbladder is, or his or something like that. It's him. That you, you can't define him any other way. If, for me, a truth, the pursuit of truth, is uh, my, uh, my great happiness, my great pleasure, my great reward, a great reinforcement, and it's part of me, and it's a defining characteristic of myself, and it's in my intestines there someplace, it belongs to me, and if you cut it out, that's like cutting out the kidney or something. You have destroyed me a little bit. You have changed me into something else. You have taken away my essence to some extent. Then there's a big question. Where is truth and justice anyhow? In, in fact, it's not like my kidney, which is in my skin and no place else. Truth is all over the darn place. It's, it's out there, it's uh, just so is justice, too. Now, here you have a peculiar situation in which something is my kidney, it belongs to me in almost the same sense, and yet it's all over the place. So in a certain sense, you can tread on my toes with, uh, without my even being around. You can hurt me at a distance, or enrage me at a distance. Injustice is me, then you attack me when you're being unfair to somebody in, in China or Bulgaria or someplace. And I don't like it. And it's me that you wounded and insulted and hurt. And to tell a lie any old place is that that's that's a personal you've punched me in the jaw. If the truth is really introjected, if it's really interiorized, I report to you that my impression is with these with my subject, it is like that to some extent. It somehow, some way, it is like that. At least to some degree at least when it's within sight or earshot or something like that. Uh, people get, such people get distressed over the attack upon the values. Uh, they get uh, depressed and unhappy and uh, angry and they will do what they can and they'll fight and so on. Okay, so jump. You say, life is not worth living unless you have something to die for. I report to you that these are, this is what people die for. Therefore, life has a meaning. Then you can start talking about the meaning of life for these people. Or the goals of life, or the ends of life, or the purpose of life, or the values of life, or what it's all about, or where you're going, or what is the good life. Good life is, is for these people, as I report. It's to live at that level, uh, the, to enjoy at that level, and the enjoyments are, are uh, at the highest enjoyments are at this level. Although fortunately also these, these people enjoying the B values also enjoy all the basic need gratifications as well, somehow in a greater sense because they can sacralize them. So that let's say for such people, at this level, talking about pure truth, poor beauty, poor justice, somehow in some peculiar way food tastes better for them. <laughs> you know, to him that hath is given. 
sex is, is uh, for such people, it, it starts getting uh, like some kind of a, a sacred ritual. You get the reports of sexual happiness, sexual satisfaction, let's say in a book like the Kirkendall book, where the levels are from the lowest kind of sex, exploitative sex, uh, on up to the best he has to offer, where there's a kind of a be-love between people. This is different from every other version of the spiritual life that has ever been written that I know about because here is a joining of the spiritual life to the, to the intestines and the, and the penis and, and the stomach and, and blood and uh, uh, the D-life, the life of deficiency. It, it's, the whole thing is a superstructure. It's a, it's a penthouse on the body. <laughs> It is not the, it, it, and this is a big thing. Dawn, I still remember, I get cold chills, uh, you know, when this dawned upon me. This is on the same line. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to do the way the, uh, so many of the mystics thought. You don't have to, or the ascetics, you don't have to go sit on top of a pillar for ten years and so on. You don't have to mortify the flesh. You can enjoy the flesh. <coughs> Ten times more. This is, it's in the same, as, as this uh, scientist was saying, the same continuum. It's just part of the same thing. That the spiritual life or the higher life is absolutely not mutually exclusive with the bodily life or the fleshly life. Living, it, it turns out that the living, being able to live in the B realm being able to live with the B values somehow sacralizes the whole body and all the appetites. And it's a very, uh, that, that's a big deal. is because generally the, the Stoics, you know, and, and certainly Christianity, classical Christianity, and uh, Judaism and, and so on have generally said, take your pick. You want to live the higher life? Get control over your stomach, get food. Be sure that you don't need anything. Give up striving. Mortify the flesh. Uh, get self-discipline about uh, don't be a slave to food or and so on and so on. My report to you is, an empirical report, is that the people I know, maybe it's in our culture, I'm, uh, this is, I'm not sure of yet, the people I know who live among the B values uh, seem to be more lusty people generally. Remember some of the charter provisions here. Uh, there is an injunction upon you to watch out about that phony split between selfishness and unselfishness. Ultimately, it's a fate. That is, this is a charge upon you. It's, a, it's to be uh, selfish, ultimately and purely, at the B level, is to seek your real self and to be good to yourself is a way to be, the best way, to be good to others. Well, that's the, the strategy and tactics of uh, self-actualization. You might say the questions of politics, which are always questions of what you can manage with what you've got. Uh, we've been talking about directions and pure goals and ultimate ends. Then each of us has to implement in his own job how much of this is possible. Uh, how much can you implement? Uh, it seems to me that this kind of talk, no matter where you work, or whether you're a male or a female, 
it seems to me that this kind of talk is very, very helpful because you know which way is the good direction, anyhow. And it's say you go one inch in that direction, that's fine. You can be sure you're not going one inch in the other direction. And that can be, it's very satisfying. For instance, the Peace Corps kids report that their work is very satisfying. They're moving by inches all the time. I think, why should somebody go to do, you know, build a couple of little uh, schoolhouses or something like that far away? Yet it's reported as profoundly satisfying because it's in the, it's in the direction, the right direction. It's the problem for us is uh, of, of uh, transcending the little groups and of organizing ourselves into speciesood, into one one group, and. Uh, this is one possibility for doing it. I think along with some organization theorists, management theorists, who are extremely important people now, I think it's possible to have open organizations, organizations which do not freeze, which don't develop the diseases of organizations, which don't become stabilized. For instance, one book which is in this direction, it's very good, Good reading, I recommend it. It's a very intelligent book by John Gardner called Self-Renewal, where he also talks about the self-renewing society, which is more important. In my book also on your psyche and management, the whole book is in this, in this direction of uh, trying to, it's, it's a utopian social psychology or sociology. Uh, if, I changed the word from utopian to eupsychian, that's E-U-P-S-Y-C-H, uh, in order to stress that I was trying to be realistic and not talking about fantasies and dreams and wishes only. Uh, but that's a book about uh, how good a society will human nature permit. All right, some of the others would be The Human Side of Enterprise by Douglas McGregor. Some of the writings that I find very good of Warren Bennis. I haven't seen the books yet, but there are some recent books. That kind of thing. In, uh, is it possible to avoid the ills of institutionalization? And I would think, for instance, for anybody who runs an institution or an organization, that this would be an ever-present worry. You know, always this is something you have to be alert and vigilant about all the time and to watch out for and keep, keep trying to keep the organization open, self-renewing, advancing, developing, growing, instead of frozen and protecting itself against change. Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Terry Gilby and Michelle Broderick. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.